Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Mark chapter 5. So the movement in the book of Mark, and we're still kind of early in Jesus' ministry, and, and each writer of each gospel has a design and the stories that they use, moved by the Holy Spirit, and Mark uniquely covers a very long day in the life of Jesus. Uh, this would be a very long week in any of our lives, but this is one day that we've continued in through chapters 3, 4, and now 5. And so we're going to move from last week looking at the violent storm on a lake to this morning looking at a violent storm within a man. And how in both instances Jesus tames the untainable. And how both instances those who witness Jesus' power are in awe and completely undone. And so we're going to top off this, this kind of long string of activities with a demon-possessed man. And there's a lot of vivid details in here. Um, and what's, what's interesting is that Mark does not have the, the breadth of the material that Matthew and Luke do. They're much longer Gospels. But where Mark lands, he, he tends to lean in. Because both Matthew and Luke cover this in Matthew 8 and Luke 8. But Mark has the most details. And not just the most details of this account. This is probably the most gruesome and detailed and, and, and graphic depiction of depravity and wretchedness that we have in the entire Bible. Certainly in the New Testament. The level of detail which we're going to look at this morning. And see, why is that detail there? What images does this, this bring to mind? And this is meant to be shocking. And one of the other things we're going to look at are the many parallels between the accounts that we've seen in this this morning. Because we've, we, last week we saw Jesus' power over creation. But this man and these demons are also his creation. So his power over all things, whether the natural or the spiritual realm. And just like when God created, he took darkness and made it into light. The kingdom of God come to earth is bringing darkness to light, bringing calm out of chaos. Just like we see in Genesis 1, God created first and foremost, there was nothing. Darkness, deep, formless and void, without order, without structure. God takes what is, un, what is unorderly, what is dark and lifeless, and breathes life into it quite literally. And we see that as the kingdom come in the ministry of Jesus, that He is breathing life into those He touches. And then He begins the plan of recreation and confirms that the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is here in my ministry, and we're going to look at a lot of those things. And we get many of these kingdom interruptions where the wicked world is going on as it has and Jesus steps on the scene and now we see something eternal and powerful beyond what anyone can imagine. And the demonic world does not stand a chance. And so the details we're going to look at here, this is a perfect Halloween sermon, uh, but all this stuff is real. And I want, I want you to think about that. This is not just some disconnected man and some disconnected struggle, but this really points to the struggle that we have with our own fallenness and our own wretchedness. All of his afflictions are on the outside. But there is something far worse on the inside. And imagine if our insides could be peeled back and they could see the wickedness and the depravity within us. But thankfully, this man, when he meets Jesus, is never the same, and that is the same for anyone 
who Jesus restores and redeems. So this morning, we're going to look first at the person, you know, dealing with, with his struggle, and we're going to look at the, the principalities that are within the person and that dichotomy there. Then we're going to look at the pigs and what they have to do with this whole thing. So if you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them in, out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you are most high God. There is none higher, there is none greater. No one compares to you. There was no gods before you, there will be none after. All the other so-called gods are false gods. All the other so-called powers submit to your voice. There is not a power or force in the universe that does not bow its knee before you. Lord, we see a glimpse of that this morning when the supernatural invades the natural. But Emmanuel, the supernatural invading the natural, speaks and it is done. Speaks and the tormented becomes transformed and the wretched becomes redeemed. We praise you that this is who you are. The one who transforms the tormented, who redeems the wretched, who calms the chaos. You are God of order and beauty and righteousness and goodness. And we thank you that even out of the worst that all of hell and this world has to offer, you can still bring beauty. Lord, let this be a sobering reminder this morning of our own depravity, of our own wretchedness, but also a great encouragement. And the same power that casts out demons and created the world transforms hearts of stone to hearts and flesh makes them cry out, Abba, Father. We praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, our helper. Amen.
Amen. So, like I said, we're continuing on the same day. We, we know this by on the same day in verse 35 of chapter 4, that they go across the lake. And then verse 1, they came to the other side. Now here's one of those questions we don't know. Is it actually the same day? Is this like midnight and they get to the other side? This is even crazier if this guy comes out and it's 12 o'clock and, and, and the moon's out. Maybe they slept on the boat. Maybe they slept on the shore. Maybe they stepped on line. Or they stepped on the shore first light. Regardless of what happens, regardless of, excuse me, when it happens, here's what happens. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes, and uh, we'll get to those in just a moment. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, so first foot on shore, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now we talked about this from the beginning, that Mark loves the word immediately. Mark is a man of action, and, and, immediately, immediately. But you get a sense that he really means this one. That as soon as Jesus steps on land, immediately this guy makes a beeline coming out of whatever hole he crawls out of, and comes and shows himself before Jesus. And, um, you know, we hear a lot in the New Testament about the, the spirits affecting people. Matthew often uses the, the term a demon oppressed, not demon possessed. There's, a, there's an oppression, there's, there's an affliction that happens to the person affected by the demon. But we never get this graphic detail. And so, uh, I want to kind of work through this. This is the stuff that nightmares are, are made of, but it's in the text, so we need to deal with it. So what marks this man with the unclean spirit? Picking up in verse 3. He lived among the tombs. First thing, how fitting. There is no life within him. There is death and destruction, and he sleeps on graves. If that's not terrifying enough, and this is not persecuted Christians who run to the catacombs for safety, he wants to be there. Is where he belongs. Then it kind of goes on. He lives in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Okay, there's some superhuman strength going on here. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. Now shackles are for the feet, chains are for the hands. So hand and foot, he is bound again and again. And what does he do? And he wrenched the chains apart, literally to be torn in two. So here you got this guy sleeping in tombs. He's strong, very strong, super intimidating. He's got shackles that are broken, probably still on his hands, or his wrist and his feet. And he runs out to see Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, there's more. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. I don't know how they got the shackles on in the first place. That's the question I really want to know. Is how did they get there in the first place if no one could subdue him? So there's an interesting connection. This word subdue. In our men's study, we were studying the disciplines of a godly man. And on Sunday, we looked at the discipline of the tongue. We spent a lot of time in James 3 and saying that man can subdue all kinds of wild beasts, but no one can tame the tongue. Same word here. Just like this man could not be tamed, it's the same as our tongue. Our tongue is like this raving madman, full of evil and hatred. Who can tame it? He is running around like loose lips. This is a sobering reminder that the same word that describes the most wicked man in the New Testament, short of Judas probably, is also used by James to describe our tongue. Let you chew on that for a minute. So we get this man who's got this, this, this strength. He's untamable. 
should bring images to someone like Samson who could not be bound, who could not be held. Both of them had superhuman strength. The difference is that Samson got his strength from the Lord and the Holy Spirit. This man gets his strength from all that is unholy and all that hates the Lord. That'd be one thing if he kept to himself and he stayed in the tombs and you could just avoid him like Matthew says. No one went near this place, understandably. But he doesn't just keep it to himself. He speaks too. Look at the next verse. Verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always, you cannot emphasize this more in the Greek, always, this is a constant thing. This is who this guy is, night and day. Imagine if you had to hear that every night. Tombs, caves are like amphitheaters. And crying out. Night and day. We don't know what he was crying, but it must have been terrifying. Also, he did it on, on and he went on, on the mountains. So imagine you see this guy on the mountain in moonlight. This werewolf-looking dude just going crazy. Imagine that kind of silhouette as you tell your kids, yeah, don't go over there. Every night, every day. This is meant to be terrifying. So as I'm thinking about this, living in Sanford is always interesting. You meet many very nice people. But you meet a lot of characters as well. So uh, we had a couple who were camping in the woods behind our house. And so... And they were also uh, not sober. And night after night, they would scream at one another, cursing at one another. It would be all-out fights. And so it was really creepy, but after a while, it just became comical. Like, in my mind, I just named them. You know, it's like, all right, I can Tina, just do what you do. And, you know, or Dan and Roseanne or whoever, you know, dysfunctional couple you, you want to think of. It, night after night for weeks, probably. And they just, they just disappeared. After a while, it just became funny. Like, there's these... There's these campers just screaming behind our house every night. Uh, thankfully, they don't do it anymore. And so I can just imagine, like, that was a little disconcerting at first. But this is always, night and day, every day. This is a whole different, is a whole different ball game here. So you've got this strong, loud werewolf. Uh, he's always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So not only all this, he's, he's scarred and he's bloody. And then if that wasn't bad enough, Luke adds a detail that he was naked. So this just, you like complete the whole picture that it, this is the most, you know, the Doseki says the most interesting man in the world. This is the most terrifying man in the world. Like you could not add anything else to make this guy any worse. And I think Mark's doing that intentionally. Um, and so with all of these details... Is Mark including these? Is there some application to this? Is this just here to tell a really good story? And you know, hopefully we did a little of that, but there's some things we can learn from this. I think maybe there's at least a couple. All we have time for this morning. So the thing about it, as wretched as this man is, the full effects of Satan, as we'll see in a moment, legions of demons inside him. Without God's grace, what do we look like inside? The greed and the hatred and the selfishness and the pride and the anger 
and the lust and the covetousness and all these things. This guy wears his scars on his flesh. And how much of our time do we spend trying to put it all together? Most of the world, all of the world trying to act like they've, they've got it together. But if the standard is Christ, we're a lot closer to this man than we are Christ. And so it's very humbling. And if you don't believe me, and if you've grown up in a church or you've, you, you've heard a gospel where you are basically innocent until proven guilty, I want to refer to you to Romans 3. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 3. It's going to be uh, three books in the future. Also, why we read from Psalm 14 earlier. In Psalm 14, a fool says in his heart that there is no God. Even the demons know that there's a God. And then it goes on to talk about those fools and the wickedness of man. And I want you to think, when we look at this man and how wretched he is, and he is, let's remember that we are not so far removed. Romans 3. So when the Jews, in their minds, Paul anticipates them standing on self-righteousness. Look at verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. So insert whatever. We Americans, humans, whatever. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. See the connection with the tongue there again? They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the picture of our humanity apart from Christ. It's not far off from the man we see this morning. The worst example in Scripture. But here's the beauty of this. Here's the good news of this. If Jesus can transform that guy, if his power is enough for all of his demons and all of his shortcomings, what do you think he can do for you? For me, if he can transform that guy, if the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to die for sinners, take their sin upon himself and rise again that they might rise to new life, if he can take that guy's sin, don't you dare think he can't take yours. Don't you dare think your sin is too great. Don't you dare be so self-righteous think that God is not powerful enough for your own sin, for your own ugliness. Because I know you. You are ugly inside, as am I. But praise God that he sent his son to go to the cross and praise the son that he sent the spirit to seal us and redeem us and make us new. And every time we see someone who is tormented by sin and darkness and transformed, we should praise God that that is our God. That is our Savior. So I want all these details also to get you thinking about your own sin. Do I continue in my sin? Do 
Am I comfortable in it? Have I just given up and said, yeah, this is who I am. I'm going to go sleep on the tombs. I'm going to cry out night and day in my own head. Or do I run to the shore like this man does? As soon as Jesus steps onto, the, onto dry land, he gets out and he makes a beeline. Now, we don't know if it's the demons coming to pay homage or the man maybe for the first time taking control back of his own body and saying, this guy has answers. We're going to see that in just a moment. But I also want you to think, though, we often get lulled to sleep. And we think that because we walk around and we see people day to day, they have it all together. Well, they're really not that bad. I mean, they go to work and they pay their taxes and they smile and they tip well. And so they don't really need the gospel. Remember, they're much more closer to this man. They are no different than this man without the gospel. So we have to remember the, the, the desperate need that our world has for the good news of Jesus Christ because without encountering him, they would join men just like him and will join men just like him for eternity. But one detail jumped out at me in this text. And this is not spoken of much in the church. Uh, I don't know if it's taboo or if it's just not known. You notice the detail of cutting himself with stones. This really struck me because there is another pandemic that affects the world right now. Roughly 2% of the population. The same, by the way, of the, those who've been affected by COVID. This man is certainly not the last person to struggle with internal pain that wants to manifest itself externally. And the numbers of those harming themselves from, from, from pain and, and, and the number of, of suicide is rising every year. And so I want us to just have a sober conversation for a minute. Because like this man, and many people we know, and I've seen this in my own family and in this congregation, many people struggle with torment inside, and they feel like the only way I can solve this, the only thing that's going to solve this pain is to cause more pain to my physical body. That is demonic those lies, there is no truth to them. But they are so prevalent in our culture. We tell people that they come from nothing and they go to nothing. Life is meaningless. You can do whatever you want. Those who would want to see their own blood, there is something inherent with them saying that blood will cleanse my sin. If I can see blood, if I can feel the pain of my own brokenness, maybe somehow I'll be healed. And I tell you that there's truth to that. But it is distorted. Because sinful blood can never cover sin. This is what's at the heart of the atonement. Two wrongs do not make a right. You cannot put sinful, wicked blood and try to cover more sin and wickedness. You need blood, but you need pure, spotless blood. What this man missed and what so many people, I see a lot of you nodding, many of you have people in your life who may struggle with this. The only solution is not to see their own blood, but to see the blood of Jesus Christ. That his blood is the answer. 
that he is the one who heals and restores and binds up the wounded. And so if you are in Christ and you struggle with this kind of pain and this kind of hurt and you have bottled this up, know that Jesus, like the rest of all our internal and external ills, he is the answer, but specifically his blood. His perfect, spotless blood that is the complete covering for our sins. And if you know someone who struggles with this, that is the only answer. All the therapy and well wishes in the world cannot stop the urge to find completion, to feel pain, to feel something different than what I feel inside. Point them to Jesus and His blood, the only sufficient covering for sin. I just felt like I had to take a step aside and mention this for a moment because I've never heard anyone really talk about this in the church. Not to say that it doesn't happen. But this is largely ignored when I went to look up information on it. There are very few organizations and studies even committed to it. It's kind of like swept under the rug in a lot of places. The amazing thing about the gospel is that Jesus went to the cross to make bloody graves beautiful gardens. And His blood brings beauty and brings restoration. So as we think about this, this man, think about those things. And if there's something that, and if you are struggling with something like that, talk to people. Ask for prayer. Run to the Lord. Cry out as this man does. And we're going to see just that here in verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down from him. So again, imagine, this is the first thing you see coming off the boat. This crazy, naked, screaming guy who's rushing towards you. I don't know about you, but I'd be a little afraid and I don't know if I'd want to get out of the boat. But he does what's unexpected. He comes and he falls down before him. Same word here for worship, prostrate. So this is a a physical posture, not a spiritual posture. This is not worship at the moment. This is fear. This is awe. This is dropping to his face in front of Jesus. This crazy naked man streaked to Jesus, all puns intended, and fell on his face. Thank you. Um, And so this this interchange is very similar to a lot of what we see in Mark's gospel. You want to see who has the best theology in the gospels? Other than Jesus, it's the demons. The demons always rightly know what's what's going on, which is really interesting. Because what we saw at the end of chapter 4, the disciples after they see him cast out demons and restore shriveled hands and preach and teach, as soon as he calms the waves, what do they say in verse 41? Who then is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. But the demons, like they do in chapter 1, chapter 1, Jesus encounters a man with an unclean spirit. He says the same thing, verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And I will keep saying this, right theology does not turn into salvation. The demons know and they shudder. They know rightly. And they lift up his name higher than the disciples do. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? With his face in the dirt. We're going to deal with this a few more times in Mark. We'll also deal with this in chapter 9. But it's fascinating the clarity of the spiritual realm. 
There's no doubt. They don't have to, they, they don't have to you know, confer with one another. Who is this? They know exactly who he is. There is, a, there is a sight and a clarity that the demons have that the disciples don't. And they have an interesting request. I adjure you by God. I plead with you, essentially, do not torment me. This word for, for, for torment. It's a long, slow process. It's kind of the sense of refining gold, but there's an element of pain entered in. This is, this is long torment. This is not a slap on the wrist. They know what Jesus is capable of, but they also know their future. Matthew includes this important detail. Don't torment us before the time. They know the future. They know that one day Jesus will return and their torment will go on forever and ever. They know that there is a time when they will be tormented and it will not be light and it will not be brief. But they're enjoying relative freedom now so they're, they're appealing, ironically, to God. The God who they rebelled against. The, 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 the God who they rejected when they sided with Satan in the great heavenly schism. You ever noticed how many atheists, skeptics, though, and haters of God, when their life is on the line, then they want to pray. Then they want to appeal to God, and this is exactly what, what's going on here. The demons know their end is sure, but it's not yet. I've still got some, some, some time here. Can I play? And they hate God, but they appeal to God. And so Jesus, listening to their appeal, engages with them. Verse 8. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so Jesus has complete authority. Jesus is not shaken by this, just like the wind in the waves. Just like he was sleeping on the boat, he is not worried now. This is his creation. These demons, he created them too. So he doesn't, you know, he, he's not worried, but we take it for granted that every time Jesus speaks, it is so. Come out of the man. Peace, be still. When he speaks, things are created. Darkness comes to light. Order comes to chaos. So this is a stark contrast because in those days, and we have manuscripts, the, the histories of Egypt and Rome and ancient Greece, and they had these magicians too because pagans also hated demons. They would have laundry lists of spells and concoctions and they would battle for hours trying to cast out demons. And it was such an involved process and Jesus just says, come out. This is amazing, the power that he has in his voice. Jesus is not like those exorcist movies and those sweating priests that are mumbling again and again and again and again. He stands calmly, boldly, directly speaks, and they listen. So there's an implication here. What happens when Jesus tells them to come out? So I want you to turn to Luke 11. This is a parallel account of what we looked at in chapter 3, where the Pharisees accuse him of passing out, or, you know, excuse me, casting out demons by the prince of demons. But Jesus kind of peels back the kingdom nature of what's going on here and the spiritual reality of what's happening behind the scenes. 
What exactly is happening? What exactly is Jesus declaring when he casts out a demon? Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? By the way, Jews tried to do the same thing as the pagans. Therefore, they will be your judges. But, big but here, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come, to, come upon you. What is Jesus saying here? You need to see that you need to decide right now, am I from God or am I from the enemy? If I'm from God, if I'm from God, this man's entire life of torment is leading up to show you that the kingdom of God is upon you. These demons who fall their face in front of me are to show you, are to confirm my message that this is no ordinary ministry. And he goes on. Because when you see what is going on here, when he's casting out those who are in the house of the strong man because a stronger man comes, this is a strong dividing line in the sand. This is a war. This is a battle and there is no middle ground. I've said this before. But those who try to remain neutral in between two opposing forces, they get shot. There is no neutrality. Jesus says so himself. When a strong man, pick up in verse 21, fully arms, fully armed, excuse me, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him. So Satan is safe. He is strong until someone stronger comes along. He attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He conquers him and, and humiliates him. And then the line is drawn in verse 22. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. I have heard people say wrongly and foolishly that there are th three types of people who encounter Jesus. Those who believe in him, those who reject him, and those who leave undecided. No such thing. Jesus says, if you are not with me, you are against me. If you do not love me and fall down before me and worship me because I am God, you've already chosen your side. And this is what he is doing. My kingdom is coming. If you are in my kingdom, you will not blaspheme the Holy Spirit and attribute it to the work of Satan. This must be so clear. And so then Jesus engages with this unclean spirit to show the battle nature of what's going on here. Look at the, the, the Spirit's name, this collective name. Jesus says in verse 9, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. This is the perfect definition of schizophrenia. My name is Legion, for we are many. This guy is one and many at the same time. And there's this interesting interplay here because sometimes it is he, sometimes it is they. Jesus is truly speaking to a man, yet they have control of his, his body. And the word for, for legion, the, the numbers are kind of mixed, but it's somewhere around 6,000 Roman soldiers. It is the largest group 
of soldiers that would, that would come together for a specific purchase, purpose. There are many. So this is quantitative. There's a lot of demons in there, but also qualitative. There is an army in there. This is why this guy's so terrifying. That's why he's so strong. He's got an evil army in him, bubbling up and brewing up and, and, and can't wait to get their hands on something. Yet, in the great words of Martin Luther, one little word shall fell him. Even the legions of demons, by a simple word from Christ, are brought down. And again, if Jesus can restore a man with legions, many, many, many demons in him, what do you think he can do for you? Is Jesus still too small? Do you still think he is not powerful enough for your own struggles and your own wickedness? Do you still think you need healing some other way? Do you still think there is somewhere else you can go? I know many people who do, but when you read the Jesus of the Bible and you see what he is doing, this is meant to shock us for sure. But even more importantly, this is meant to encourage us. Again, this is our God, our Savior. And he's exchanging with this man. He speaks, he replies, his mouth is moving, but he's not the one who's speaking. This legion speaks, for we are many. Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So they must have been very comfortable there. Remember I said we'd get to this earlier. This is um, one of the Decapolis, so Greek for ten cities. This is one of the rare instances where Jesus' ministry goes beyond the kingdom of the Jews. And so if you don't understand uh, how things happened that day, if you think our country is divided, Jews would not even step into a Gentile city. They would not step into a Gentile home. And so he does not want to be cast out of this country. He's comfortable there. Wherever it is, he feels at home, and he's comfortable among the tombs. Cast me out, but don't let me leave here. This is my home. You know what's interesting, though? This is why most people don't want to follow Christ. Because they are very comfortable where they are. Even if it is a dead, rotting tomb, even if there is no life in it, even if it's a bunch of, because it's a bunch of other people who think like me, I don't want to follow Christ, but I'm really comfortable here with all of these pagans, with the wickedness and the darkness. And we should realize that, that sin wants to be in company of, of sin. And that is what we we are calling people to, to leave every comfort, even something that whatever seems comfortable in the world is no better than the tombs that this man is living in. That is what we are calling people to. That's what we are calling ourselves to and we are comfortable in our own sin. We are taking a nap over empty graves because they lead to nothing but death, as James tells us, because we begin to flirt with them, we begin to desire to them, and and they give birth to death. So he begs, and then uh, we're going to kind of shift here to something he sees. So he, the the demons, kind of look at the the surroundings. Verse 11, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. A second time, they begged. 
These ferocious demons turn into sniveling cowards before Jesus. They can tear chains to pieces. They can frighten everybody who walks by, but with Jesus, they have to beg. Remember, these are Jesus' demons. He has complete authority over them. They must submit to him. Like Job, and when Satan comes before him, he must ask God's permission. He has no authority outside of what God will, will give him, and this what these demons are doing. So they ask permission to go into these pigs. So some of you are quick and you realize, oh, wait a second, Jews and pigs, there is all kinds of uncleanliness going on here. If you're an Orthodox Jew and you read this, your skin is going to crawl. This is a, an observant Jew's nightmare. One, it's an unclean Gentile city, unclean spirit, covered in blood, also unclean, living in tombs, the dead are unclean. And then you might have noticed that Pigs aren't really kosher uh, within Jewish society still till today. If you were any kind of Orthodox Jew, any kind of observing Jew, would not even touch a pig, let alone herd them. So you've got a herd of the, the least desirable animals and all of this stuff coming together. This is very layered. And these demons asked to go into the pigs. Let us enter them. They begged him. So he gave them permission. Permission granted. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, and they entered the pigs and the herd, uh, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, a few things to notice. I love how Jesus gives them exactly what they want. Please don't let us leave this country. Well, they didn't leave the country. They stayed in the country right to the bottom of the sea. Second, I think it's very appropriate that these unclean spirits go into the most unclean animal. Their final resting place is certainly appropriate. What I also love about this is even the pigs would rather die than to be inhabited by demons. When, when faced with the option of living with this horde of demons, we're going to go straight over the cliff and we'd rather drown ourselves. This is how awful this is to be inhabited by demons. And then if you read this story like I always have, you come to this ethical dilemma. Two of them, actually. So first, if you're anything like me or you're a good, committed capitalist, you're like, this is 2,000 pigs. 2,000 of anything is a lot. That is someone's livelihood. That will, that will care for your entire family and their family's families. That will set you up for generations. You're like, wait a second, Jesus. Why would you just destroy their livelihood? Why would you take money out of their hands like what, how, how are they going to feed their, their families so i think what's important for us to realize here is that no amount of material goods are worth more than the, than the life of one redeemed nothing is more valuable than the dead coming to life if all of their worldly possessions are taken away from them yet a man in their own community comes to life Jesus brings him to life, then it is worth it. Not to mention common grace that now your kids can walk by here and they're not tormented anymore. But they should be celebrating that this man who is dead comes alive, that people are more important than possessions, 10 times out of 10. And here's the second ethical dilemma. If you're different than me, and you're like, oh, the poor little pigs, um, there's also a lesson in that. 
the image of God in man is higher and greater than any other created being. And this really challenges those who want to remove the Imago Dei, who want to say that, that, that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Unfortunately, Jesus had to kill all those pigs and they didn't get any bacon. But again, the most important point is that someone is redeemed. This man who has been tormented his whole life is now whole. Christ's saving grace is of the greatest importance, and it overshadows everything. And what I love about this is it shows he will spare no expense. I will give up anything for you. And I want to close on this text in Isaiah 43. One of my favorite passages for encouragement for the afflicted believer. The language that the Lord uses and what He will do for His people. Isaiah 43. I'm just going to read 1-4. through But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. One of the most beautiful messages you will ever hear. The most beautiful message you will ever hear. Your God, your Creator, is also your Redeemer. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. The amazing thing is that these demons possess this man's body, but not his soul. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. Not ultimately, at least, this man was burned and hurt, but he was preserved. For I, and the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, what is He willing to do for His people? I gave Egypt as your ransom. I cared so much for you, Israel, I gave an entire nation for you. Cush and Seba in exchange for you. You think He won't give 2,000 pigs? Because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. If that does not bring you chills, you don't know how wicked you are. But to know that God loves you that much, He would give nations for you, people in exchange for your life. That is the beautiful news of the gospel. That is the beautiful union that we have with Christ. And the love that our God has for us. Because a week later, even a day later, a moment later, even this man's whole life of torment is forgotten because he is delivered. He's delivered from all his sin and his, and his wickedness. He gave whole nations for ransom. He is the God of redemption and restoration. And like the parable that Jesus tells, if a man finds a pearl in a field, he sells everything to go and buy it. That is how valuable the redemption of the Lord is. Worth way more than 2,000 pigs. So just quickly in conclusion, Christ's earthly ministry, it signifies the coming of the kingdom of God and His kingdom is the triumph over sin and death and all the powers and principalities and, and forces that Paul says we war against. These things are real. But they are nothing compared to our God. They are cowering, sniveling, 
wimps on their faces in the dirt, crying out before the king of the universe. We should be encouraged by that. There is nothing that does not fall before his feet. And the other side of that, what he does within us is the, the beautiful transforming power and the fruit of the gospel is that broken sinners who live among the land of the dead, who are dead themselves, dead in trespasses and sins, who are under the chaotic domain of the enemy. In Jesus Christ, we have calm and we have peace. And as we're going to see Wednesday in Hebrews, we have rest. Real rest in Him. If you are in Christ, the peace that passes understanding, the calm that the world cannot give. As we're going to see next week in this text, this man sitting in his right mind before Jesus is an amazing picture of restoration. And there may be loss of life and livelihood along the way, but this reminds us that he will never lose one of his own. The gates of hell shall not prevail. He will go into the darkest, deepest depths to redeem one of his own. That is our God, and that is the gospel that we proclaim. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for this beautiful reminder of deliverance from evil. Redemption from death. Life and restoration. We praise you because you are all-powerful. There is no dandelion or demon that does not submit to you. Lord, let your people take rest in that. Let us find encouragement in the beautiful news of the gospel that Jesus saves sinners, takes us from our darkness and our chaos and directs us to sit at his feet and learn and listen in peace and calm. Lord, let this just be an encouragement to your body. If there is anyone in the sound of my voice who thinks that they cannot be restored, they cannot be loved, their sin is too great, their pain is too overwhelming, Lord, I ask your spirit to direct them to cry out to you. Fall on their face before you that they may be healed, that they may be restored. And then that they may praise the God who creates, redeems, and will one day perfect all for the praise of His glorious grace. In your name we pray. Amen.